0: Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, Episode uh, Oh Forty Two. Uh, thanks everybody for bearing with me for the last two months of nothing. Uh, it's it's so weird. I I I say like, all right, I've got a series coming up, so I'm really going to try and uh, and crank these things out a little faster. And uh, it's the longest gap there's ever been between episodes. Uh, I do apologize. Uh, apologize, I was sick for a while. And then I was just uh, busy with other things, and I'm also very undisciplined. So, sorry about that. Uh, we, I am continuing the series now of movies about art, uh, but I felt like I, I should have a guest with me, and so I brought, I brought back friend of the show and former blogger. Hello. I didn't say your name yet.
1: Jason. It's,
0: it's Jason Eakin. It's Jason. Jason, how's it going there, buddy? That's going fine.
1: Oh, all right. Glad to
0: hear it. So, uh, so Recording may- here late at night.
2: W-T-Y-L.
0: E-R. E-R. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, that's what you can expect for the next hour and a half. Uh, so, Jason was last on when uh, we talked about uh, a serious man. And that was a while ago. And so, Jason, what have you been up to since then?
2: So... Yeah. When was how, okay? How long? Set the timeline for me. I don't even remember. I don't have this in my. Uh, okay, our, hang our, on. Our friendship is so fluid, Tyler. A day is like a thousand years, and a yeah, thousand. That's years. about right. You know
0: that uh, that's only a one way street. A oh, day is uh, like a right. thousand years. <laughs> all right. Let's find let's find out here. Okay, so uh, May nineteenth of last year is when you were on.
2: Oh, I'll tell you what's changed. Uh, I had a job then. And uh, I don't now right? Um, because I was a temp uh, at that time. And Mm. uh, that ended in like uh, August of 2010. Now, here's, whoa, hey, look out. What's that on the horizon? Um, I may be actually working for that same company uh, and even that same boss in a permanent fashion. Man, oh, man. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. no, I, I That's think a good it'd be, thing. It'd be pretty nice. But also, you know, you also... Uh... I completed a short film. You completed a short film. I'm making another one. And uh, what was that short film called that you it's made? It's called Reservations. Who's in that movie? Uh, Josh Long, he's been on the show. Yeah, friend of the show. Um, Stevie Potter, whose husband has been on the show. Yeah. Nathan, who's on the show there. and uh, And I directed it. And I wrote it. Oh, and Tyler's in it. I'm in it too. You're yes. in it as well. And uh, and it's for it's
0: available for sale. Uh, unfortunately, not on this website. It's available over at com. So if you if you want to uh, to support Jason and, and buy the movie and get you get to see me act and all well, of that and, and
2: and you and I and uh, and your co-host from Battleship Pretension, David. Um, we we all do a commentary on there, yeah. which is a lot of fun.
0: It's the whole experience was was a lot of fun, and so head on over to Battleshipretention.com, Click on the store option. It's only five dollars. It's no problem. Only five dollars. You don't even feel it.
2: You don't even
0: feel it. <laughs> so you know
2: it's interesting though. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I mean, it turned out it turned out very well. Yeah, uh, I'm very proud
0: to f- have been a part of it.
2: Yeah, the f- the film turned out very well. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, it's not really at all the direction that i find myself going artistically no not at all yeah. well that writing i mean from a writing standpoint uh, it's pretty close i don't know e- e- even so i i i sort of i think i was trying to get like all of my seinfeldian instincts out yeah of me all right fair i mean enough. the fact of characters using logic and things like that yeah that's probably still going to show up from time to time yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But yeah. But but I mean, in terms of, you know, it's three people mm-hmm. talking. It's Best
0: I'll say this, and I don't mean for this to be a, an insult by any stretch. Uh, it's it's fairly low ambition. Uh, and given some of the things that uh, you've been working, you've done in the past and things that you're wor- I know you're working on for the future. Uh, it is surprisingly small. Yeah. Um of course, there are still challenges because a lot of it takes place in one location, mm-hmm. and that provides its own challenge, which I, I think you uh, you rose to that. But uh, but yeah, so it is it is a little different than what I uh, I usually think of when I think of your work, and I think of it often. <laughs> but uh, now you mentioned a documentary. You're making a documentary. What's that going to be about?
2: Did I mention that already? Yeah, I think I mentioned it to you. No, often. you said it. You said it real quick. Oh, did I?
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. And then I went back and said, let's talk more about reservations because I wanted to push the thing that I'm involved in.
2: Well, incidentally, you're a supporting character in the documentary. <laughs>
1: uh, to your
0: I,
2: own chagrin.
0: Supporting but not supportive. No, I'll say that's that. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh
2: you definitely give it a a, a certain rating uh, oh, do I? when it when it will come out. Uh Tyler has single handedly <laughs> made this a non family adventure. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I don't care. Do you have a name for the for the documentary yet or yet? Not really. Uh okay. it, it, it's about it's about a personal trainer. It's about Sean Richardson who's been on the show talking right about Harry show. Potter. Yeah. yeah. Um and so it's actually sort of about his training of just sort of d- different clients including Tyler mm. uh and including like some uh like 5:30 a.m. workouts. Uh, he calls them boot camps, but really his training for uh this 10-mile obstacle course up near Big Bear Lake. Um, what's that called? That's called tough mutter. Tough mutter. M u d d e r. Yeah. M u d d e r. Um, and and so I I followed him training on that. I would actually go running with him and like take a you know take a flip video and even get some footage there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, so so the competition was was held uh, at the end of May, uh, and I actually went up with two different cameras and. If you if you just pay for like a um, sort of a spectators pass, you're allowed to go anywhere you want. Oh, that's nice. on on the uh, on the obstacle course. So I ran it with him. Um, man, oh man, yeah, with a camera in hand, with camera in hand, camera in tow, backpack on the back. Man, oh man, that's right. So so hopefully that should provide. I haven't really looked at a lot of that footage, um, but yeah, we actually just finished up. We did two days of there's going to be a whole montage of just the different exercises he puts people through. Mm -hmm. And so we spent uh, probably about six hours total of him just doing exercise after exercise after exercise.
0: Now uh, there was, now I'm asking uh, for various reasons, both for the listener and for me, because I'm curious uh, because I'm involved in this thing. Uh, There was talk of you doing interviews with uh, some of his clients.
2: Uh, Is that still on the table? Yeah, that's, that's probably going to be the last thing I do. It's just sort of, I want those. Uh, I don't quite know exactly where I want them to take place. Yeah. If it's going to be at the gym or various people's homes or or whatnot. So, yeah, it's it uh, it's an interesting experience because yeah, I've never made a documentary before. So again, I, I like making movies that I can't use as a calling card for anything else I want to do.
0: But it's okay. You're challenging yourself as an artist, and you kind of want to try out while you can right now. Yeah, you know, you've as you mentioned at the moment, you do not have a job. Right, and You know, you kind of want to just try not necessarily get things out of your system, but you just want to see what you can do right now when you've got the freedom to do it. This is not a particularly costly film to make. No. And so, you know,
2: really all you need is time.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's what you have right now. No, I did have to buy
2: Sean food after we did some of the filming because he was very tired and I felt almost uh, in some way responsible, which I don't feel often um, for making him so tired. So you really uh, so now you're operating at a loss, <laughs> right? Exactly. I'm in the I'm in the I'm in the red on in the this red, one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh, but yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to see how that turns out, and not merely because I'm ter- I'm terrified to be a part of this thing. How will Tyler be portrayed? It doesn't matter. I haven't given you anything good uh, in there. I we get me cussing. And me uh,
2: getting angry with myself, sure, and all of, and that's it. And Sean reacting to that, and having to continue with the workout, right? And so crying after. I'm sort of the, I'm sort of
0: an antagonist.
2: Yeah, you're the villain of the piece. I could see that. I could see that. That's not true at all. <laughs> I'm just like, what if I made, what if it, I did like a, a King of Kong sort of thing and I just somehow just edit it to where you are just a villain. And I, every time Sean like says something hopeful, we just cut to you just tearing him down or punching him.
0: And I just say, you know, we're not so different, you and I. <laughs>
2: um,
0: yeah, it's, it was a weird experience because like, like exercising in general mm-hmm. is very difficult for me. It's kind of a new thing that I've been doing. Yeah. Uh, and being in a very vulnerable position because you know sean is a friend yeah it's not like he's a doctor he's someone that i see socially Mm -hmm. and so for him to see me in in incredibly vulnerable both physical and emotional uh positions is is frustrating and then to have a camera there on top of it man oh man it's it's pretty rough uh
2: can we can i tell a quick story that i that i'm sure is gonna make it in the movie okay and i'm so pleased i caught on camera Uh, So at the end of uh, Tyler's workouts, he gets to box with Sean sometimes, which means that he gets to punch Sean. Yeah. And so one particular day he was hitting Sean and uh, he finished. And uh, then Sean said something to the effect of, all right, there, that wasn't so bad. To which Tyler said, oh, excuse me. (laughs) And then like made a motion like, "Okay, come on back. There's a little more. And uh, then you continued hitting him because he said that it wasn't so bad when you were hitting him before.
1: Yeah,
0: because I'm a weak person, nah, and uh, in in a lot of ways, you punch hard. Well, I, I wasn't punching hard that time. Apparently, <laughs> this is what this is my goal. I, he's hurting me now. Admittedly, I'm paying him to do it, but he's hurting me through the in the workout, and so I want to hurt him. That's why we do the boxing thing at the end. It's an eye for an eye. That's what, it's biblical. That's right. It's, I think you got your title. Um, and people I, like oh, I, an yeah. and people like oh, I thought I was renting the uh, Sally Field Keeper Sutherland thriller.
2: <laughs> so um, it's a bad movie, by the way. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh uh, no, but I, I I've seen the uh, the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Anyway, Eesh. but uh, well, I'm very excited for yeah. that. And so uh, I'm doing know. those, and I'm also doing a lot of writing. I set uh, a pretty uh, I I'd say ambitious goal for writing for this year. And uh, I'm about halfway through, and I've even added something. So I'm doing a lot of writing, making a documentary. Hopefully, I can shoot something else before the end of the year. But I always say that, and it never happens.
0: Yeah, I. Uh, well, I've I, I had an idea for like a really quick project that's sort of like a ver- like a web mini series. Yeah, uh, that I had had a couple. Not of years Not even ago. a regular
2: web series, right? A mini web series. Yeah, because it c- it can't
0: go on. Is it? because basically, Eight, fourteen second episodes. The, the episodes could be about a minute, okay, and I think I had told you about this. i'd had this idea a couple of years ago with our group of friends when mm-hmm. we were like trying to make things on a regular basis. We only wound up making a couple of things, but um, uh, basically it's the idea where you take dialogue from the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh oh, and yes. then you have just people say them right. and you realize just how sociopathic and threatening yeah. so threatening uh, these people are you know just uh like winnie the pooh he e- has eaten all of rabbit's honey which sounds adorable and then uh, rabbit and then uh, pooh says i must be going now goodbye rabbit and then rabbit goes well goodbye if you're sure you won't have any more And then pooh gets in close is there any more and then rabbit backs down no there isn't i thought not <laughs> and then he leaves <laughs> that to me is hilarious yeah so it is and then uh tigger saying uh, you know I, my name is tigger and winnie the pooh says you said that and he goes i did well did i say i was hungry no? Well, then I'll say it. I'm hungry. Like, everything sounds so horrifying. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's a web series I wanted to do, is just a series of these scenes. Yeah. It sounds delightful. It really does. with the new Winnie the Pooh movie coming out.
2: Oh, I'm sure that's a perfect
0: tie-in. <laughs> no Cross-promotion. Question, no question about it. This thing's going to be a runaway hit. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, enough of that. We've got... We've burned enough tape. Yeah, we've got things to do. I feel like people now... Uh, have determined whether or not they want to keep listening. The answer is probably no. Uh, all right, so in roll that, tape and action. <laughs> Take us there. <laughs> but uh, okay, so the first I, I've decided I want. I was thinking of having this be a, a four-episode series, uh, but I was a little shaky on the f- on the fourth one, so that may or may not happen. Uh, but there will be a definite uh, three-episode series. The first one was, of course, uh, about Ratatouille. And today is going to be about Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. And to remind everybody, the theme of these episodes is uh, films about art. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being here to sort of encourage uh, those who might be listening that are artists. Uh, what we learned last time was that there's, in spite of what some people in the church might say, there's, and what people just in general might say, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might feel like you're not you're not serving a purpose in the you know the kingdom of god and that sort of thing but of course uh, everybody has a role to play and if you feel like this is what you're supposed to be doing then by all means do it yeah. and don't let anybody talk you out of it so that was uh, that was last episode this episode uh is a little more complex <laughs> yeah. and so and so, why not bring in Jason, who really Ayo. just muddies up the waters, if if nothing else? It's true. So, <laughs> complexity, you say? How about if I make it uh, an absolute uh, mire? <laughs> but um, you say complexity, I say loose ends. <laughs> I like to just go round and round and not arrive anywhere. Yeah, but I sure did talk a lot in the meantime. I sure did. But uh, so, yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, the prestige. Because that is a film that is, of course, in the same way that uh, that Ratatouille is about, it's about cooking, but it can be used as a metaphor for art in general. Yeah, and the Prestige is about uh, magic, specifically on stage, and and that is about art as well. And then the next episode is going to be about Black Swan, which is about ballet and i actually like uh, in a nice little moment of patting myself on the back i'm actually quite pleased that the movies i picked are not directly about film so, yeah i'm um, good for me although I'm, there I'm is to there, there
2: is a certain amount of theater oh no question about it in in a couple of these
0: yeah and so yeah it's i could have incorporated like pollock or something uh, yeah but painting is a very it's a very different type of art mm-hmm. um
2: but I think everything has to... Uh, I Although, think, wait. The second film we're talking about today is about... Yeah, we talking about, about the primary films here. Oh, we're going... Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: But um, The primary colors. No, we're not talking about primary colors with John Travolta. We're talking about The Prestige with Christian Bale. Ah. And Hugh
2: Grant. Allow me to get some different notes. All right. There we are.
0: Just for the record, everybody, I know it's Hugh Jackman. I was saying Hugh Grant to be funny, okay, um, so he was the evil uncle in Harry Potter, yes <laughs> that's right, yes, well done now I can't remember that guy's that's oh got it, Rachel Griffiths, right <laughs>
2: oh, constant Gardner <laughs> so oh,
0: this is just a misfire this whole episode It is
2: can I point out yes uh so last time. You had me on to talk about Signs and A Serious Man. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about The Prestige and, are we allowed to say the second film? Yeah, sure. Okay, and Barton Fink. So we talk about a very, like, not broad, but very sort of mainstream, very technically technically proficient, really solid story. Mm -hmm. And then a very difficult-to-get-through Coen Brothers movie in terms of understanding it, parsing it out and all of that. And this is and you know already like this is this is uh where I I wouldn't say disagree but like do you think Barton Fink is it difficult to get through? Well, I'll give you a little spoiler for my for my take. Okay. The first 20 minutes and the last 30 minutes are an absolute pleasure to me to watch. Okay. The stuff in between it, I the word excruciating comes to mind again and again and again for a reason that i'll get into uh maybe when we talk about it 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 may in fact be by design that may be by design to some extent
0: that's fascinating yeah we'll we'll talk more about barton fink when we get there so first things first the prestige uh which i think unfortunately uh has sort of it i think it's viewed as like a minor christopher nolan film it's the film he made in between his batman films yeah uh And so, much in the same way that people tend not to remember, like, insomnia. It's like, well, what did he... Many people think of Memento, and then Batman Begins. Like, no, he made a movie in between that's Mm -hmm. very good. And uh, The Prestige is a film that I would say definitely deserves to be remembered. Yeah. Because... And I know some people don't care for it. It's not a perfect film that you and I were discussing the other day. There are definite flaws uh, with it. But it's a film of immense complexity Mm -hmm. and of all of his films I feel like this is the one in which he he is the most maybe not comfortable but the most willing to delve into as much of the theme as he can yeah um you know you talk about memento and that has that has a couple of a couple of ideas in it not to imply that I don't mean to say a couple is in like you know not a thought in its head or anything like that but Usually, his films have you know a few layers to them, mm-hmm. and they 're relatively easy to access yeah the prestige is so fluid and so in many cases intangible and it's so I find that kind of thing exhilarating yeah uh, but I, but I can imagine some people watching it and, and getting frustrated by it because it is mm-hmm. it, it doesn 't have a lot of interest in just being I don't know, and just telling the story of a thriller, and there's nothing wrong with just being a re- uh, a regular thriller or a regular drama, um, but it wants to be. It wants to use that to explore all kinds of topics, from obsession to art to relationships to invention and innovation. Yeah, to duality. Yeah. To I, there's so much going on in the film, and and I wanted to to say. Uh, well, first off, let's 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 go with just the general plot of, of mm. the film, uh, which I will leave to you, because uh, that's why I have guests on, to do the work I don't want to do. Sure.
2: Well, uh, I, I wrote it down like this. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the 19th century, two magicians, uh, Hugh Jackman as Angier and Christian Bale as Borden, uh, become obsessed uh, with a professional rivalry whose roots are deeply personal. mm um, more than that, like that's a, that's a nice sort of general wash of the, of the film, I think. Mm-hmm. And from there it gets more and more complex. Right. And,
0: and for reasons both personal and professional, they wind up with a huge vendetta, uh, against each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and also they, they have, it starts as you would say professional, but also an ideological difference between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, they're both magicians who are working under a, a very popular magician at the time, played by Ricky Jay, which is yeah. delightful. Um, and Borden seems to be much more fascinated with the technical aspects of magic and being able to achieve something amazing. Um, Angier, <coughs> excuse me, Angier seems more interested—not necessarily more interested, but. I don't know he seems to s- he really sees the value of showmanship mm-hmm. and wowing the audience. Yeah. And he he understands that mere technical uh, mastery is not going to wow the audience. But then of course Borden understands that well you got to have something to wow the audience with and and the more proficient you are, the more wow factor you can
2: have. And, and I would I would I agree with all that. I would even go uh, just just slightly different. They go to they go to see like a Chinese musician, musician, magician. Yeah, and uh, whose name I can't recall at the moment. It's very difficult. So who cares? Uh, <laughs> right. That's Anything the that's general difficult. attitude we're yeah. trying
0: to. Uh, that's the pervading. That's that's what I want to convey with this series. If something is too difficult,
2: just give up. Exactly. Your That's faith, gonna, yeah. Your uh, calling in life, relationships. Give up, yeah. I mean, I had a fight with my wife earlier today, and you know what? She's gone. That's right. <laughs> Get her out of here. That's why there's so much stuff <laughs> around exactly,
1: your apartment, exactly. Heavens,
2: <laughs> uh, but no. So they go see this this magician that uh, Borden really wants to go to, to show Angier, mm-hmm. and there is no distinction between the profession his his professional act, his mm-hmm. persona and his personal life. Like they see him walking out after the performance and Borden is saying, see he lives the performance. His right. entire life is the performance. And, and and what I would say whereas Angier is thinking, you know, the the he's thinking about a specific moment mm-hmm. which is the moment when he has wowed an audience at one time and you know they're all applauding him which
0: is called in the film the prestige.
2: Yeah. Uh, Borden is mm-hmm. thinking about a lifetime, uh, basically a legacy mm-hmm. and basically living out his craft. Right. And so they so they do have very one is very of the moment, one is very sort of forward thinking.
0: Uh, and what's interesting though is that Borden he's all he he is about a legacy and being something of a legend, but Sometimes he's. I'll put it this way. um, I listen to a lot of uh, stand-up comedy uh, podcasts. I'm familiar with stand-up comedy, and I know a lot of stand-up comics. And there is a a phrase that is sometimes used, Mm -hmm. which is the comics comic, Mm -hmm. and the the idea of the hardest laughter is coming from the back of the room when the other comics are laughing at you and the audience is not. And and they say like there's there's tremendous respect there, other comics are like, "Man, this guy's amazing, but the audience they may find it funny to a point, but they may that you may also leave them behind and so yeah. Of course, the comics comic is somebody who a, tremendous respect amongst his peers, but is not often known in a large sense because there is not a mass appeal and so like mm-hmm. Borden is interested in be, in having a legacy and being a, a legend and, and being known as a technical master yeah but amongst a very small group of people even and so small in fact even if he has to be content knowing just knowing it himself yeah you know and that's that's what is interesting to me because yeah. uh his he's that committed to the technical proficiency
2: yeah he's that committed to to
0: his craft right because the more One could say that the more he commits himself, uh, the more people he commits himself to as a performer, the more people he wants to please, the more he's diluting the purity of his trick and that sort of thing.
2: Do you think he? See, I don't know if he thinks that way though, because he still does want to perform for a lot of people, and he still, I mean, he wouldn't be, you know, he promotes himself and Mm -hmm. he takes on a persona and and things like that. I, I. I guess I didn't I never saw him as having a problem with um with pleasing an audience, but I do but I do think that you're right that he would it is more important for him to be seen by other magicians as a master than necessarily the the audience. He assumes that enough people in the audience will 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 follow along.
0: Yeah, I don't mean to uh, imply that he has disdain for the audience, but just that they are secondary, definitely, and that he does he does adopt a persona as the film goes on. But yeah. in the early days, he's very, you yeah. know, I mean, other characters comment on uh, a general lack of stage presence mm-hmm. to the point where the audience doesn't fully appreciate how amazing the trick is. Yeah, because there's a certain degree of presentation of, hey, look how amazing this trick is that yeah. he seems to be lacking. Like mm-hmm. he feels as though they should just have the appreciation without him leading them along mm-hmm. whereas Angier is is a master of presentation like he yeah. you know everything is everything's a big flourish and and he can make his his voice carry and he's just but he is the lesser magician yeah as far as uh, the technical standpoint yeah and so there you'll find like the from an from from the theme in the film about Art and what I want to talk about primarily uh in this episode that's the that's the that's the conflict that you find mm-hmm. uh is these these guys, whether they know it or not mm-hmm. adopting different attitudes uh that artists will sometimes have yeah um and we'll talk more about that uh, as we go along. The way so.
2: I've sort of thought of this is basically sort of a conflict be- between the two of them. And it's not that their rivalry is based in this, but it's simply that they are both coming at the rivalry from two very opposing points of view, as we've talked about. The basic, uh, the basics of it being artistry versus adoration. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Christian Bale's Borden is very much about the artistry and the purity of that, and uh, Angier really seeks that adoration.
0: And I think, and here's the thing: is uh, while I do uh, while I do like the alliteration um, of artistry and adoration, um, I'm inclined to say that for Borden, it's very much about the artistry, Mm -hmm. as far as what he thinks. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's about you know about the artistry, about technical mastery. Angier, uh, he thinks it's about. You know the look on people's faces about bringing something to the crowd, about making their day better, or really, I think or it's wowing, about it, wowing, them, yeah, wowing it's, them. Yeah.
2: But he but wants course, to see it. He, he wants, wants to know the adoration. That it's been him right.
0: doing that. He wants the adoration. Like it is for him a very selfish thing. Yeah. But I think it's also a selfish thing for Borden as well. Like Absolutely, he yeah. wants to be the one that has achieved these uh, these right. amazing things, and so both of them what they say, I think, is almost almost noble. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I want to explore the world of of stage magic mm-hmm. and I want to see what it can do. Like that's a really noble, amazing thing. You know, mm-hmm. innovation, really testing the boundaries. Like that's pretty neat. And then like I want to please the audience. I want people to come away having had an amazing experience. You know, mm-hmm. that's almost a like a Sullivan's travels kind of attitude. And, that, and both of those, there's a nobility to them, but, of course, with these characters specifically, there's a selfishness underneath that doesn't necessarily reveal, reveal itself right away. But as the film goes on, you realize, like, oh, yeah, I can't totally get on board with either of these guys. Yeah, But, uh, but yeah, so now as far as uh, plot goes, how much more do you think we should go into it? I don't care about spoilers. By the way, everybody, there will be spoilers uh, yeah. in this episode. I don't think we've given any way so far, but there will be uh, as as the episode goes on,
2: um, yeah, I I, I don't know. I guess I don't want to get bogged down in just sort of tracing the plot, right? As much as you can trace something that moves back and forth in time, yeah. Um, hmm.
0: I think maybe one of the big things to to mention because it is it does certainly weave into uh, the 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 topic at hand is that when these two guys are working for the magician, Angier's wife is, uh, there's probably a name for, she she works there as... She's the assistant. She's uh, the, the assistant. magician's yeah. assistant. And so uh, during a trick that goes wrong, she winds up drowning on stage Yeah, because Borden might have, earlier he's talking about tying a certain knot that's tighter because to him like it just makes sense to do the better knot. yeah and of course because she can't it's it is assumed that because maybe he tied that knot and that she couldn't get out and that's why she drowned and so of course angier is furious at him yeah and and there starts the and wants to you know kill him he wants to Mm -hmm. get revenge uh But I think eventually—and at first he wants to, like I said, kill him, but after a while it's almost as if he decides the best way to get revenge on him is to beat him in this professional way. Right. Because it was Borden's professionalism Mm -hmm. that caused this in the first place. Yeah. Tying the better knot. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And so that's when their personal— vendetta and their personal biases and their and their, their obsessions get all mixed up with their professional endeavors. And
2: and that's what I guess is really sort of beautiful about the film is mm. that yeah, it is it is this, I mean they are they do have opposing ideologies, but it is this personal thing that kicks off their rivalry. But that rivalry touches so many different things in their life. It is professional, it is personal. Their obsession with one might as well be obsession with the other because mm-hmm. they are both very driven people. Uh Angier goes to goes to Colorado, so he leaves London, goes to Colorado to seek out some something else that, that might help him as a mm-hmm. magician. Um so these are very driven men and they're obsessed. Like, like you said, uh the best way for Angier to get back at Borden is professionally, mm-hmm. which means that his obsession to to have his personal revenge has to be a professional revenge as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that something so tragic personally happened in a professional setting also links those two as well. Right, um, And I guess the the most wonderful thing about the film is that thematically and structurally and in terms of the plot mechanism, everything in these guys' lives... Affects something else, so that it's not with with most movies. You have, you know, there's a plot over here going on, and that kind of does its own thing, and then you have some other part doing its own thing. But in this, they're all so linked that to affect one of them changes the aspect of, of all of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in terms of craft and in terms of story, that is something that is unique. That's something that you kind of come to expect from a christopher nolan film yeah he's kind of become known for that and and a lot of credit probably should be due to uh christopher priest on whose novel the film is based mm-hmm. now have you read the novel i have not i haven't either and it, and i i've
0: i've heard good things about it and yeah. I, I would like to read it but at this it, i don't know I'm and sure, it does I'm have sure a novel there's... structure it, very much so yeah yeah and it's and I do want to, before we delve uh, more into the, the thematic uh, element, I do want to talk about the film just from a technical standpoint. Um, yeah. It, as is often the case with uh, Christopher Nolan uh, as a director, of course, it's beautifully realized. I feel like it's, you know, gorgeously shot. The art direction yeah. is wonderful, um, especially because you know it's turn of the century, mm-hmm. and so from a co- from a costume standpoint, from a you know architecture standpoint There are There is the temptation Especially given the 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 content There There's the temptation to make everything Maybe a little too glamorous and a little too romanticized mm-hmm. And of course when the characters are Performing it is romanticized yeah. But the streets of London And the way the characters Dress when they're you know Off yeah. stage uh, You really f- it feels And and The Temptation, because of the genre of the film, it's not supposed to be, like, a hard-hitting drama or anything like that, or a period no. or like a period drama that's supposed to rep- represent our reality. But nonetheless, he still is committed to a certain grimy quality uh, in mm-hmm. the art direction and not have everything look a little too polished, which I think he could have. Yeah. And which, oddly enough, another movie that is very similar that came out the same year, The Illusionist. Yeah. I think f- kind of falls prey to. I think mm-hmm. that movie, as much as I like elements to it, Paul Giamatti most of all. While I like elements of it, like that, that film, I think is a little too polished and a little too neat. Yeah. And between this one and that one, I mean, this one is just so is interested in so much more, and I love all the acting all around. What do you? What would you say about the way the film is made?
2: Uh, I would say that in most films, and in in The Illusionist and something like that, there are you feel like some maybe thoughtless aspects of the production. They they Mm -hmm. want it, they're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to try to evoke, I guess, uh, you know, this kind of London and here we go. But with this, there is not a single aspect that that doesn't have some value to it, that doesn't actually influence the movie itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think formally um, it's brilliant because its form actually... What's uh, I, I would say its form shows you its themes. Its, it, its mm-hmm. form is tied to its themes. Yeah. Uh, they talk about magic tricks a lot. Um, they talk about there's, there's the three parts of the magic trick. Mm-hmm. There is the pledge, the turn, and the prestige.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's how the film's structured. It's, it's structured like a magic trick. And the movie is about magic tricks and there are so many reveals in a magic trick and there are the same reveals in the movie mm-hmm. that it basically refers back to itself in a good way. Mm-hmm. And then it's also flashback upon flashback and flashbacks within flashbacks and that, that sort of directs you to... The, the, the idea that these characters are really trying to piece together what has happened. Mm-hmm. They're trying to piece together for themselves how they've come to where they are at the end of the film. And so there is a reflective aspect to that uh, that the film's form also uh, points to.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting because the idea of jumping around in time is something that sometimes can be done in a way that is just sort of... For lack of a better term, self indulgent, and it doesn't really serve any purpose. Uh, that there can be a temptation to, be, to yeah. do it just because it. Oh man, this this is going to be pretty awesome, you know that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, whereas this film, he as you mentioned, like he doesn't do anything half heartedly. He doesn't do yeah. anything just because. Ah, this seems like a neat thing. He does it because, in this in the in the case of the film you never quite know if it's told from a specific person's point of view. And if you're seeing a flashback or this is the present and that's the future, or are we seeing this from Angier's point of view or Borden's, or are we seeing this is Borden's interpretation of something? Right. Like, is this how someone is imagining something? Everything is just so fluid and everything works. I don't know. Everything just feeds into its, into,
2: into itself. Mm -hmm. Um, that, do you feel like you do get lost and and don't because I because I feel like I know exactly where it is at every at every step uh, without it ever really I did actually probably on
0: the second viewing yeah. I, I had a pretty I had a much more solid idea but as you're watching it like for the first time mm-hmm. um, and of course I assume that anybody listening to this they've already seen it once and you know at least once and so uh, what I'm saying might be uh, you know pointless but. Uh, The first time I watched it, I was just like, I don't know where we're headed. And I don't always know what time period I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if this is the future or not. Uh, I don't know what the present is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, uh, but I like that. I like that because, of course, with characters like this who, (coughs) because when you're dealing with revenge and obsession, Mm -hmm. the past might as well be present. Yeah. And when you do that, like everything seems to be happening at once. When you approach it from that point of view, uh, something that happened years ago could be your immediate motivation for doing this thing, and so right. it might as well be happening now. And so, I like that the film doesn't take a linear approach to the to the yeah. story. I like that everything twists and turns as far mm-hmm. as how the time is pre- is presented. And yeah, and and like you said, just everything feeds into everything else. The, yeah, to the point where. The artistry of the film and the themes of the film are—they they inform one another. Yeah, they they feed into one another. They they build each other up to the point where you can't you can't break them apart. Yeah, um, and that's and I tend to like movies that do that. Uh, although often movies that do that can be a little heavy handed, and I feel like while this film is definitely dark, it's still a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, much like, as you said, a magic trick in itself. Like there's yeah. a mystical quality, a, uh, a confusion quality, sometimes even a dark quality, but you're always fascinated to see what happens next. And that's yeah. the fun of it. Um, but yeah, so it's, I, I feel
2: ahead. like with this film, we, we have to eventually, like we've, we've mentioned obsession and the ways that sort of, it is linked to not only their professional ideology, but also their personal desire for revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think one of the most important aspects that goes along with the obsession is something we haven't mentioned yet, Mm -hmm. which is that both of these characters are in more than one way living a double life.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Since we're giving spoilers, uh, you've got Angier, who is actually like a a rich man, Lord Caldwell, I believe. So he's actually two different people as well he finds a man who looks like him so mm-hmm. that he can have another copy of himself so in that way he is trying to there are, there is a duality there as well mm-hmm. when that person proves to be uh ineffective or uh unreliable un, very unreliable
1: yeah
2: um he finds another way with the help of tesla mhm um and then there is a you know there there is Every night, two of him mm-hmm. um, and and then with uh with Borden he there are two brothers who are both living double lives right, and so you literally just,
0: nobody knows that there are two brothers except right. them
2: and and for the record, like the more you watch the film, the more you can see which which one of them is present in a given scene, and that is to christian bales immense credit. Yeah. And that's another way that the craft is so thoughtful and so complete.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh that they're not even like they know exactly where they are at every single moment such that as you watch it over and over and over again, you can actually see the hands at work completely.
0: Yeah, there there must have been a temptation to just sort of give the same performance. Yeah. And you could even you could even almost justify it from an artistic point of view and say that these guys so badly want to be one person or want to seem that way that it stands to reason that they would just start to emulate each other to the point where it's just one person in two performances. Right. Uh, You watch the end of uh, dead ringers Mm -hmm. uh, with Jeremy Irons. And at the beginning of the film, he's giving two very very different performances. But as they, as the characters become more and more insane, uh, by the end, he's giving one performance uh twice right, and so there so you could even justify that mm-hmm. uh artistically, but he opts not to do that, which is right. of course m- very difficult for an actor to do and uh and yeah, and when you go back, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that one, and that's that one right and it should be noted, i don't think you ever actually find out what their names are there's only Alfred
2: yeah yeah I kept looking online to see what the brother's name was Mm -hmm. and I couldn't find it anywhere so maybe maybe if it's out there somewhere or perhaps it's in the book at some point although I I I, I'd kind of like to not know
0: and I and what it's what's exciting is it's like okay well there's Alfred and there's the brother it's like or Or they're both Alfred yeah that's that's the neat thing about it yeah and that's and that's uh, that's the exhilarating thing about the film mm-hmm. is when you try to put it in simple terms. Like, there's Alfred. I'd like to know the brother's name. Like, that's an easy way to put it. Yeah. But
2: and they the, give the brother wh- what's the name they give the brother Fallon.
0: Fallon. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, and and basically the each brother will at times put on you know makeup and mm-hmm. be sort of a confidant or the friend right. or the assistant of Borden named Fallon. Mm-hmm. And you know that there's something going on with that guy, something yeah. mysterious going on. But uh, you're not 100% sure what it is. You kind of, you know, when I first watched it, I kind of had a feeling it's, I bet it's that. But they do a very good job with the makeup.
2: Yeah. And so. <laughs> but so there is the, the idea that this, these dualities mm-hmm. are a big part of the obsession and a big part of the idea that As they get more and more obsessed, they are more destructive, not only to themselves, but to everybody around them Mm -hmm. to the point that one of them that 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 Angier is actually killing himself every single night and is willing to do that Mm -hmm. so that he can have that adoration and so that he can hopefully do something that not even Borden can figure out and and the 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 fact that he is willing to go there and willing to go to that much of an extreme um really makes it you can pity him you can hate him there's so, there's such a conflict of feelings about what he's doing mm-hmm. and what's interesting is that okay so uh to give a little bit
0: of uh, background as far as the plot uh goes so the the basically the single trick that is that both magicians are trying to do better is called like The Vanishing Man or The Disappearing Man or something, Um, in which the magician goes in one door and comes out the other, and you don't know how... On one side of the stage, Mm -hmm. comes out the door on the other side of the stage, and you don't know how he did it. That's basically it. And so each one does a version of it, and with Borden, he steps into one cabinet and then comes out the other, and we know, of course, later on that it's because... They're twins. Yeah, you know he go one brother goes in one, the other comes out. The other, and then Angier comes up with one that is, admittedly, from like it. There's more showmanship to it. It's basically it's not a it's not a cupboard or a cabinet. It's just two doorways, or two door frames with a door, and it involves trap doors. Yeah, and he finds a double, and that's amazing. And then I think Borden comes up with. Does he come up with another one that's even better?
2: Uh, I can't recall, but uh, I I would say that one of the most uh, you mentioned the word exhilarating. One of the most exhilarating sort of sequences in the film is seeing Borden do it, and he he basically has like a bouncing ball. Yeah. He throws it so that it's bouncing. He goes in one door, and by the time it gets to the second door, yeah, the other Borden has stepped out and caught it. Yeah. And so it's this beautiful, like, you know, you're you're just watching the ball go, and then there he is, and then Angier throws his hat, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: goes through one door, comes out the other side, and catches it, yeah, and stuff, yeah, and and here's what here's why I'm emphasizing that one trick because what Angier eventually does is we mentioned uh, Nikola Tesla, um, oh, I wanted to,
2: I, I wanted to say what Borden does to Angier. Oh yes, okay. Because there's a wonderful moment where uh Borden has found out that uh Angier's using a double mm-hmm. who, you know, is not a brother like he has. And so he basically pays the guy off and so Angier you know goes through the trap door, breaks his leg yes. because he he just falls and usually has a pad there which Borden has removed. Yes. Uh looks over to see um to see Borden, like, sort of doff his cap to him. And then Borden goes up and steps out of the door instead of All another right. Angier.
0: And then you see the double has been tied up and yeah. and is lowered down from the rafters. The idea, And the audience doesn't know that it's yeah. the double. They think that that Borden, who now, by the way, has adopted a certain showmanship, goes by the name The Professor, I believe. Yeah. And so now, like, so he's actually started to adopt... Angier's ideology because he understands, like, if I'm going to compete, I need to be able to compete completely. He understands that the showmanship is now part of the
2: technical Mm -hmm. element. And so it's just a beautiful sequence that really does show what each of them can do and then the rivalry between them. I mean, that is a brutal scene Mm -hmm. just in, in terms of what Borden is willing to do to angier Mm -hmm. uh in order to win and then here's what fascinates me because angier decides
0: he's going to he's going to win and he's been hearing about these science experiments by nikola tesla so he goes to colorado to uh talk to him about this experiment in which case ultimately what what it winds up being and and it's a nice reveal because it's not shown immediately what's happening yeah uh What's happening is physical matter is being copied. Yeah. And so Angier goes into the middle of this machine and gets copied and there's another one of him however many feet away.
2: Well, it's the the, the idea is that whoever is originally in the machine mm-hmm. gets transported somewhere else. Right. And then there is a copy where they were standing, right. but they both. But it's not like one then has the mind of an if-
0: an infant and the right. other doesn't. Like, yeah. it's not that uh, they're both. It's an exact copy. Yeah. So, and he decides, oh my gosh, there's two of me, and of course there's the duality again. But what's fascinating is, so he he pays Tesla for the machine because yeah. as you mentioned, he is rich, he's got resources. Uh, so he pays Tesla for the machine and starts organizing a new trick but here 's what 's fascinating he could have said he could have come up with a completely new trick and say, "Hey, look, there's two of me now yeah, he could have done that, but then that would be a separate trick exactly he has to win at the uh, disappearing man yeah it's weird because the obsession what 's fascinating is about obsession is commitment mm-hmm. and a surprising a surprising lack of ambition. Hmm. You're incredibly ambitious at achieving this one thing, right. and in doing so, you rec- you fail to recognize you could do something else that yeah. will, in many ways, dwarf the thing you want yeah. to achieve. And and that's what I love about Angier's decision because what he winds up doing is he he puts the machine on stage, and there's a trap door underneath. And so what happens is the trap as the machine makes the copy, the trap door. Goes and the the copy falls
2: into basically a water tank and then drowns, which has some really lovely uh, significance. Based, you know, when you think about how his wife died, right? And then he is
0: transported to the back of the auditorium, and then he shows up, and people are like, "Holy crap! How yeah. is that possible?" And therein lay like the the ultimate trick, and so he has found a way to to win. Yeah, you using pure technology, Mm -hmm. like all the showmanship in the world
2: and talk about magic. Yeah. You know, like actually physically, truly transporting someone to another location. Like the, the, the illusion is no longer an illusion. The illusion is that it's an illusion. Right. You know, at that point. And so, so by the end,
0: Borden has, has, whether he knows it or not, whether he would admit it or not, Mm has started to adopt Angier's ideology from early in the film because he realizes that's part of the craft, yeah. is bringing the audience in. You know, when he when he pulls that trick uh, on Angier, he says, come with me, audience, across the street to yeah. this theater. Like, he's bringing the audience with him. Like, mm-hmm. he acknowledges they're there. Um, and then Angier acknowledges, like, oh, th- the only way to... W- all the showmanship in the world can't beat this amazing machine yeah. it will enhance it but this machine this technology this technique that's what it's all about the artistry is what it's about yeah and that's how i'm going to win mhm and so both of them wind up at the same place at the end as far as what they're willing to accept and as far as ideology and that sort of thing right. and that's that's one of the things i love about this movie man yeah. oh man and you and you did mention their w- their willingness to do terrible things uh early in the film angier attacks borden and i think she, how did how, what happens uh, in which he loses two fingers
2: uh it's the you know it's the gun trick mm-hmm. of you know the magician and and borden shows his wife this that that oh you know you just cleverly remove the bullet right. well then angier you know gets himself in as the assistant mm-hmm. you know from dress, dresses up in disguise and knowing that that's how you do the trick puts another bullet in the gun and yeah. blows off his fingers.
0: Right. And so but and so one brother has two fingers missing. Yeah. And so they decide, well, if we're going to keep this illusion going, one could say it's like, well, I guess I'll just wear gloves all the time and then we've got, you know, you go the Harold Lloyd route yeah. and uh, no one knows that you've got fingers missing. He's like, yeah, but you're going to have to take those gloves off sooner or later. So here's what we're going to do. Yeah. So they take a chisel and just bash the other brother's fingers yeah. off because that's the commitment that they're willing to make. Mm-hmm. That's the sacrifice they're w- they're willing to make. And then uh Angier, as we mentioned, <coughs> every night that he that he does uh, by the end with the with Tesla's invention, every night that he does that involves another copy of himself.
2: Yeah,
0: and he's killing that copy. Yeah, and he he mentions in the moment that as the copy is being made. It's still like there's one conscien- consciousness He yeah. says, I never knew if I was going to be the man in the box or the man taking the bow, Yeah. you know? And so in that moment, there's tremendous fear because there's only one consciousness and then it's split into two mm-hmm. and the one and one of them is dead. And by the end of the film, uh, Borden is con- confronts Angier and says, and Angier says you have no idea the sacrifices that I've made, and Borden says don't bring up your wife again because because uh, Angier's been using that yeah. periodically as sort of a sort of a trump card yeah. to you know assign guilt and that sort of thing. And so when so Borden says like don't bring up your wife again, and Angier's like that's not what I'm talking about. Like yeah. he's moved past that now. Yeah, because now. Because he used to have a personal vendetta, and then it became all about the professional mm-hmm. aspect of it.
2: Well, and because the professional is the only way to get any sort of satisfaction about the personal. Like, right. you can only say, why did you do that so many times? Right. Like, that, you know, that's not going to satisfy him. Um, so, yeah, th- there is great self-destruction by both of them. There's also destruction of so many other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Borden has a wife which means that two men have to pretend to be this woman's husband yeah. and, and one of them loves her and one of them doesn't yeah one of them very clearly doesn't uh you have Angier uh falling in love again with uh the Scarlett Johansson character and then sending her off you know sort of like um a pimp or something mm-hmm. to spy on uh to spy on Borden and then the other Borden falls in love with her mm-hmm. so then you have Again, two men who actually do both kind of love this woman and are both sort of using her. And then the Borden who is married, you know, his wife uh, played very well by what's her name? Rebecca Hall. Yeah, she's very good in it. You know, she can see that that Scarlett Johansson's character is attracted to Borden. And sometimes he seems to be playing along with that. And mm-hmm. so it just, I mean, it destroys the marriage. It destroys um, the relationship with Scarlett Johansson. And then um, sort of th- this whole time the film is going on, the, the film actually begins with Borden being convicted of murdering Angier. Right. Because, you know, he has basically found the body. Uh, Angier's been very clever and... Uh, you know, has only blind people basically taking all of these these boxes and putting them in a warehouse. Um, Which and, is, by the way, chalked up to showmanship.
0: Yeah. But it turns out it's very functional.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Um And I feel bad we haven't really talked about Michael Caine, but in terms of all of these thematic things, he doesn't have a whole lot to do. Except um, it's interesting to me that he winds up... He doesn't... He switches allegiances. He goes...
0: And switches back. Like, he goes no. back and forth between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And you don't feel like he's betraying them. It, no. Instead, it, it's almost as if he wishes that they could be civil to each yeah. other, finally.
2: Um, but so, Borden, because he's found one of these Angiers in the box, mm-hmm. now everybody thinks that Borden killed him. Yeah, because and-
0: the regular, like, the the original Angier, like, doesn't reappear. Like, he, once yeah. he's gone, he, he leaves... Adopts his, his old identity, yeah. grows a beard, and then mm-hmm. goes and lives his old life.
2: Yeah, except that he tells Borden that unless Borden gives him the information he wants and basically admits defeat, admits that Angier is the better magician, is the better man, that he's going to adopt Borden's daughter, mm-hmm. and he's going to take the man's daughter away from him. And so, again, just the way that the obsession spreads out, the way that it it just finds its way into all the corners of these two men's lives who are so talented, who have such ambition, who are so really innovative in terms of the technique of just illusion and the the innovation of actually a machine that transports someone yeah. and makes a copy of a human being. <laughs> yeah. Like all of these things are just marred by their obsession and yeah. their rivalry, and it destroys literally just about everything they touch.
0: And you know what's interesting? When I've talked to some people about this movie, how many people, because you mentioned the idea of Angier, maybe because he's got the money and his willingness to like adopt the daughter, he's not going to do anything terrible to the daughter. No. But he's going to possess her, frankly.
2: And he's going to make sure Borden knows right. it before he
0: dies. So, so I think people look at that, and I've, I've heard people say that, Borden is the hero, uh, not hero, but the protagonist, and Angier is the antagonist. I'm like, uh, easy there. Like, don't get me wrong, that's a terrible thing that Angier does, but let's not forget that Borden, through his commitment, drives his wife to suicide. Yeah. He's no less monstrous. Yeah. I mean, just because both of them have lost any perspective on humanity at this point. Yeah, So, like, to me, like, and oddly enough, like, I don't know, let me ask you this. As you're watching the movie, is there one do you side with one more than the other? Uh I,
2: I do, because the, the the beginning of the film, even though you know, before we know sort of how it unfolds, um, before we know what the trick is, mm-hmm. uh we we do sort of think, oh, Borden seems to have had some hand in killing Angier mm-hmm. and then we see that he definitely was partly responsible for angier's wife's death and so we are in angier's side mm-hmm. for the first part of the of the film and then as as you learn more and see you know all the things that both of them are doing i think you you do sort of switch and by the end of it i feel like it, it's interesting borden because he's in prison and it almost forces him to have a perspective about it mm-hmm. but angier is committed, and, and Borden seems to have a sense of regret about it, and the fact of losing his daughter, someone so innocent, you know, because even his wife it's like, I mean, she, she is completely innocent, but she's not a child. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the fact of a child being in danger because of him seems to fill him with some regret, and seems to change him. When Angier comes to the prison, he is, he's willing to just give him anything he wants yeah, in order for the daughter to be safe and not go with him. Whereas Angier has basically gone, gone over the edge. Yeah. Although it should be noted
0: that like Angier gets killed at the end. Like they shoot by the other board who's
2: not in jail and hasn't had that same epiphany.
0: Yeah. And so like, and it's weird because my allegiances stay with uh, Angier. Hmm. To the point where it's like, I'm upset that he's doing what he's doing by the end of the film. Yeah. Because uh, I'm like, oh, come on, man. I was really on board with you. And oddly enough, and this will lead into, I mean, we've been talking about some of the themes uh, so far. But I want to talk specifically about, uh, actually, this might lead us into Barton Fink. We'll get to that uh, in a moment. But my reason for um, sympathizing with Angier co- goes back to that ideology thing, mm-hmm. is that. Because he feels more inclined to the showmanship and to bringing the audience in and acknowledging mm. the audience, I think he is made to feel by Borden that he is lesser,
1: hmm.
0: that he is not a real magician. He's just an entertainer, and that sort of thing. That phrase is not used. That's that's my paraphrasing
2: no. of uh, of my interpretation of Borden's attitude towards him. But don't and you it, think he's... At the beginning of the film, I think he's right. I think Borden would be right in that assessment. Their rivalry does actually force him to be a better magician. But it also forces Borden to be a better magician. It does, yeah. That's
0: that, that's very true. And so... and, that, and that, But that's the thing is... And, and you'll run across... And maybe it's because, like... You know, in, in film school, like, my tastes... Because of the movies that I liked or whatever, and the movies that I made, and because I wasn't that interested in the movies that I made, uh, I wasn't that interested in being all experimental. I wanted to actually yeah. tell a narrative story. Um, n- there was a certain attitude of, not towards me, but towards films and the films in general that I liked. There was an attitude of, it's like, yeah, I guess if you like that populist stuff. You know, like yeah. this sort of, one could say, an elitist attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think I saw in Borden, and so I think I just sort of aligned myself with Angier. It's like, yeah, there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting an audience to like what you're doing and wanting to wanting to engage the audience. Yeah. Because there is a difference, and this is where we'll get into uh, maybe Barton Fink a little bit, there is a difference between engaging an audience and pandering to an audience. Yeah. And I don't think Angier wants to pander. No, he I doesn't. I think he wants to engage with them. I
2: mean, he has left his sort of a, a, a life of ease and comfort yeah. to pursue this. He, he is committed to it. Mm-hmm. But see, I do... I, ideologically, I definitely side with, with Borden because mm-hmm. his... The, the, the idea of really living your craft and having there be no difference between mm-hmm. the professional and the personal, <sighs> which incidentally they both end up doing. Yeah, um, but but that desire and understanding that that's what creates a legacy and that that's what makes the ones who are brilliant brilliant. Uh, I re- I I really identify with that. And here's the thing: I think ideologically, I side more with Borden. I think
0: I sympathize more with Angier. Oddly yeah. enough, yeah. Uh, but for my own uh, oh, for the, my own personal
2: reasons, the the moment when Angier is under the stage and everyone is cheering for him. And he, like, puts his arms out and he takes a bow yeah. as if he sta- – like, that. it's such I, – I, I think that almost tells you everything you need to know about him. And you do feel so bad for him that he can't – he's not there in the moment. They can't look at him. Yeah. They can only look at what they think is him.
0: And it's weird because it would have been easy for both the director and the actor to look at that moment and almost demonize him and be like – he's so egotistical. Like he so badly wants this adoration, but like you look at it and you're like, man, this is heartbreaking. Like it really cause you is. See, yeah. Cause you see everything that he's, that he's given up in the, in the sense of his childhood and his money yeah. and the stuff that has been taken from him mm-hmm. with it in his wife. And you see like, and he can't even get the credit, Yeah. you know, for having done all that mm-hmm. and for crafting a great trick. Yeah. And so like, it's, I don't know. It's, Man I love this movie And yeah. I just like I like its willingness To not side with one One yeah. or the other Throughout the whole film And even I, I, think you're, I think you're probably right I think we're on board with Angier More at the beginning And then our sympathies Go more towards Borden at the end But it's never 100% either way no. Like Both of them I don't know it's, it's almost It reminds me of the movie Which is not a wonderful movie But it reminds me of Changing Lanes Where
2: you think you're gonna be? I actually think that that's a quite a wonderful movie. I love that film.
0: I used to love it. I think I like it now. I stand by it. I, there are some people who really don't like it. I stand by it. I think it's a very well-made film. Mm-hmm. Chiefly in what I'm talking about, where it's just in in a world where in in a world where like movies, are just like okay, heroes and villains. That's how it works. Right. Like, the Prestige is not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. They're both heroes, and they're both the yeah. hero and the villain.
2: They are both. To some extent, heroes who become more and more villainous. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I feel like now, because there are, before we get into some of the, uh, we've already been talking a lot about the, the thematics of the film, but uh, as far as how it relates to uh, the overall uh, seri- episode series that I'm doing, uh, I want to say that until after we talk about Barton Fink. So, um, so let's, let's do that now. So it's right. interesting. Uh, the The way that you secured your way, uh, secured your spot on this episode, sure, is that I was. Th- I mentioned that I was thinking of doing an episode about the Prestige, and and I said, like, hey, what, uh, what movie? You know, just off, the, what movie do you think uh, would be a good companion film? And oddly enough. As if I was an idiot for not having thought about it before. Not to imply that you, you said it so quickly. You're like oh, Barton Fink. I was like, uh, um, did I? Yeah, I'll tell you. I don't remember. Yeah, it's very strange. But the more I thought about it, the more I was absolutely on board with it. Yeah. Um. And you and I've, you know, we we talked off mic about uh about how we can how we relate the two movies, but uh, but before we do that, let's let's talk a little bit about Barton Fink. It is um. It's a film that one thing that you should probably know going into it or maybe, maybe not, um, is that the Coen brothers wrote it while they were experiencing writer's block as they were writing Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Miller's Crossing came out in uh, 1990. They made Barton Fink in 91. Yeah. Uh, And it stars John Turturro as a character named Barton Fink. He is a playwright in New York who's achieved a certain degree of success uh, in the 1940s. And he gets put under contract I say that as if he had no choice in the matter, but one could say he didn't. Um because hey, when Hollywood calls, you, you answer do? what are you gonna say, no? Don't you gonna refuse so.
2: that call? I don't think so. But uh so And at that time, that's what all these major writers were doing. Yeah. They were funding their next novel or play or whatever no. by writing, you know, by churning out pictures for these studios. Churning out, that is a
0: yes, wonderful way to phrase it. And so he goes to Hollywood and Gets
2: involved. Like in at a shit. hot dog factory.
0: Yeah. That's what I think of it. I'd say that's about right, yeah. yes. And they're about, those movies are about as artistically nutritious as a hot dog is. Sure. Um, artistically nutritious. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't making an analogy. So, so yeah, he goes out to Hollywood, and it's about all his crazy misadventures as he's yeah. dealing with the head of the studio, as he's dealing with, with his next-door neighbor at the hotel uh, at which he's staying. And there's a lot of surreal things that go on. He meets – you mentioned uh, novelists who use this to finance their novels. He meets a William Faulkner-like novelist uh, played wonderfully, I think, by uh, John Mahoney. Yeah. Especially when the character is drunk. He's a lot of
2: fun. Named W.P. Mayhew. Yeah. Oh. Just Bill. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So –
0: and then his and Bill's uh, assistant named uh, Audrey – who uh spoilers it is revealed has written his last several novels because yeah. he's just been too drunk
2: and most of his screenplays, yeah oh probably yeah
0: and so and Barton is experiencing he's writing a wrestling picture with Wallace Beery, yeah and so and it's it is the most cookie cutter thing, and mm-hmm. so it seems strange to get this esteemed playwright to write a cookie cutter thing, and so he experiences a great deal of writer's block. And he keeps trying to figure out how to how to get himself out of it. And uh, he gets more and more involved in the weirdness of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like one can't really talk about how Barton Fink relates to The Prestige without talking about it purely from a thematic standpoint. And so one of the things... That is, that is interesting about the film. Of course, it's. I think it's wonderfully acted all the way through. I'm a, I've always been a big fan of almost all the acting in every Coen Brothers film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like John Turturro a lot, and it's interesting to watch him in their previous film, Miller's Crossing, and this. I mean, you you wouldn't really know is the same actor, because as Bernie Birnbaum in Miller's Crossing, he's just very extroverted, very big. He cries, he laughs, whereas in Barton Fink, he's very subdued he lives the life of the mind as he himself says and then john goodman plays his uh, next door neighbor charlie meadows and uh in maybe my favorite performance uh michael lerner plays the head of the studio for which he was nominated for an oscar for supporting actor uh losing to jack palance for city slickers how do you even begin to compare them
2: that's a brilliant performance though Oh, yeah. Palance and City Slickers?
0: Oh, it's very good. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I give the edge to Palance. All right. Fair enough.
0: And here's the thing. I, you, The way you phrased that was very Deadliest Warrior-esque. <laughs> uh, edge goes to the Pirates for the uh, for the blunderbuss. <laughs> you can read my uh, review of Deadliest Warrior on Spike TV at com. So... <clears throat> Uh, spoilers. I don't care for it. So, so Barton is trying to. He's trying to write this wrestling picture, but it's just not coming to him. Mm-hmm. And his only, and he just feels kind of it's an adversarial relationship with Hollywood. The only person that he feels, for lack of a better word, comfortable with, is Charlie, his next door neighbor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the relationship is kind of one-sided charlie's an, an incredibly friendly guy and uh and he comes over and and barton sort of uses him as sort of a sounding board mm-hmm. and doesn't often listen
2: no uh barton thinks whole thing his whole thing when he was in new york is that he wants to be a writer who is in touch with a common man like yeah. if if you want to like his his artistic goal is mm-hmm. to connect with the common man to have a theater of the common man. Mm-hmm. Um and so then then Charlie comes in and boy if he's not the embodiment of that common man. Yeah. And he sells yet, insurance. Yeah he sells insurance he's kind of a bigger guy you know he doesn't really have it all together yeah. but boy he could tell you stories. Absolutely and instead of listening to any of these stories, Barton Fink just wants to pontificate about what it means to be the common man, and what it must feel like, and yeah. what he can bring to it, and boy, well, it's just—it's all ethereal. It's all simply abstract to him, even and though he's is, got the the physical embodiment right there. And it is
0: definitely condescending.
2: Yeah, like there's a part where Charlie is
0: starting to tell a story, and Barton just completely interrupts him. Yeah, and and he says like. You know, Charlie, in a way I envy you, you know, like your life, uh, you you do the same thing. You know, the drill, the life of yeah. the mind. There's no roadmap for that territory. <laughs> yeah. like he's just he's so pompous. Yeah. But also it's that idea. like I can't think of anything more condescending than it's like. You know, in a way, I envy. And I envy you. I know you think I couldn't possibly. What with your terrible life, right? Uh, but yes,
2: even someone as amazing as me could envy you. And it's because I understand you better than you understand yourself. Right. As I'll tell you now, instead of listening to you. And and it's such a it's such a fascinating thing because because
0: uh, Barton is just. You you kind of like him, but you certainly feel at a distance from him. Whereas Charlie, yeah. you just warm up to immediately. Yeah, as one often does with John Goodman, he's just yeah. a big teddy bear. Yeah, but uh, <coughs> and so that's that's sort of the primary relationship uh, in the film. But then there is also Barton and Lipnick, and Lipnick as the head of, uh, the head of the studio. His emphasis for all his lip service about how much he respects the writer and how the writer is king here
2: at the studio, right? Uh just, just write the wrestling picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he hasn't even he hasn't seen Barton's play or read Barton's play. Right. He hears good things. Yeah. And then the, the producer that
0: he assigns to the film played by Tony Shaloub, uh <laughs> Barton goes to him and is like, Well, I need a little bit of guidance and Tony Shaloub looks at him and is like Wallace Beery wrestling picture. What do you need a roadmap? Yeah, just it's so easy. It's yeah. just the easiest thing in the world. Nobody cares about this. Mm-hmm. You don't need to bring any artistry to it. It'll make a. It, it won't be expensive to make. It'll be make a quick profit, no problem. Yeah, and so, uh, and that's very you know it's the opposite of what Barton tries to be. Yeah, as a as a writer, you know he 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 inha- as I said already he inhabits the life of the mind. Yeah and he writes ostensibly about the common man or rather what he thinks the common man is mm-hmm. but he has no connection to the common man right instead he's much more interested in lecturing the common man about right. what what he
2: truly is mm-hmm. and so and uh, really the film is sort of about him gaining that experience of the subject that he was interested in writing about right by the end of the film. He actually has some experience with the common man that allows him to write that picture. Absolutely. Uh, And he, cause he even says, uh, toward the beginning of the film that he doesn't really think that his play was, was very good. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, he's glad that it got him some success, but he feels like he can do better. And he's, he's viewing this first screenplay as a chance to really start that. Um, but he's – and this is why I said the the middle of the film is maybe the most excruciating thing to watch for me because it's him looking at the typewriter and as a, as a writer watching him not write, I just want to strangle him and sit down in this place and start writing. Like I just – because he is so pompous and it's just like you've got all of the things there in front of you. Why don't you just see it so that you can start writing so that I don't have to watch you not writing because it's making me worry that I'm not going to be able to write. And in that sense, like him sitting there and trying to write
0: or trying to think of how he's going to start this thing. It's sort of and, and how he so desperately wants to transcend this genre. Yeah. Uh, in that way, he does sort of remind me of Borden in The Prestige, just like wanting to bring artistry to it, and that paralyzes him. Yeah. Um,
2: because that's what he's concerned about. Yeah, not... the difference being Barton Fink is not nearly as good as he would like to think that right. he is. Right. But that he's,
0: he's less interested in. Giving the audience what they want that that 's not the way to phrase that he 's less interested in having a, a sort of dialogue with the audience he 's much more interested in what he can tell the audience with his amazing writing skills right and and he reminds me of Borden in that sense and then as as the film goes on, and I, I guess we kind of need to skip to the end here because i don 't want to spend too much time on this. Yeah. Um,
2: well, the the middle of the film is him not being able to write, mm-hmm. him not listening to Charlie, right. and him finding out that W.P. Mayhew also can't write. Yeah. So it's all about the, like, nothing really good is happening. Oh, no. And there's, n- like, no progress is being made really anywhere, because he's not listening to Charlie, and mm-hmm. then Charlie has to leave. Um, he, He's not writing, and W.P. Mayhew's not writing. So it's like nothing is moving forward no progress is being made at all
0: yeah it's just it's stagnation just yes in it, every way
2: exactly and i think because the coen brothers were writing from a place of writer's block mm-hmm. i think that's very deliberate but for a writer or at least for me that's infuriating to watch yeah because because i want to knock some sense into these people
0: and because it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to yeah, write. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and of course, there's the creepy yet funny scene where it's like, well, uh, here's some dailies from this other wrestling picture we've got. And it's just one large, creepy looking wrestler saying, I will destroy him. Yeah. Which is delightful. Yeah. But uh, so the film takes a very unexpected turn. And it is revealed that Charlie Meadows' real name is Carl Munt. And that he is responsible for the deaths of many people. He's a serial killer. He's a serial killer. Mass he's, murderer. Yeah. He's, uh, he's killed people with a shotgun and is taken off their heads. Cut off their heads, I could have said. It's, yeah. uh, somehow it sounds quite kind of gentle if you say it yeah. that way. But, um, and so, like, Barton is, of course, amazed by this. Like, this isn't the Charlie he knew. Yeah. But, of course, he didn't know Charlie. Right. Any more than he knew the common man. And yeah. so, of course, in that sense, uh,
2: Charlie is the perfect surrogate for mm-hmm. that. And meanwhile, in desperation, he is called Audrey himself mm-hmm. to help him write something. And she comes over and basically starts writing for him. Mm-hmm. And then they sleep together. Only to find out when he wakes up that she's dead. Yeah. She's been murdered. Yeah.
0: And uh, and then he calls, uh, he calls Charlie. This is before he finds out who Charlie is. Yeah. And that it's probably likely that charlie killed her uh so he calls charlie over to help him out to figure out what to do and charlie's like i'll, I'll take care of this yeah uh and barton's like oh man you leave it to me yeah <laughs> i'll sort this out i yeah. believe is what he says so um so once <clears throat> so once barton finds out that charlie is so much more complex than he ever thought he could be he thought mm-hmm. charlie was this simple guy who lives a simple life yeah and that and he finds out that he is, in fact, capable of so much more. And he's capable of things that Barton himself would never be capable of. Yeah. And uh, and oddly enough, it is that realization that causes him to be able to write again. Yeah. Um, his, that his new and what
2: may or may not be a dead woman's head in, in a box. box. Yes. What's in the box? There you go. Um, it's pretty much, I mean, Barton Fink is very, has often been compared to Seven. Oh, no question about it. And that they're both movies, yeah, with a box,
0: and that's John, a, I, I'm gonna say that's about it, and doesn't Morgan Freeman play John Goodman in the film? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one of my favorite car- uh, one of my favorite jokes to, to make um, so yeah, so like, it's only when he engages with the common man as the common man really is right. Only then does he find the real inspiration to write about the common man yeah. and to create something in,
2: at all yeah now here's a nice little tangent. Do you think the Cohen brothers are trying to subtly suggest that the common man is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad person uh, that's a that's a book right it's something a terrible like that? horrible, no good very bad day right yeah I, I I said two of them and thought well i've committed to this exactly let's let 's go all the way exactly
0: uh, i don't think they're saying that I think they're saying that like. There is a tendency in Hollywood, and and we've mentioned this on Battleship Pretension a lot, there is a tendency in Hollywood to sort of romanticize in the most condescending, pandering yeah. way, like, small-town America yeah. or, the, or middle America or, like, you know, will this play in Peoria and that sort of thing. Uh, so, like, there's this tendency to do that. It's like, yeah –
1: these you people, don't really know. They're just as kn-
0: capable of, yeah. of horrible things as they are of good things. Right. Don't romanticize them. Don't demonize them. Yeah. They're people, incidentally, just like you. Yeah. So I think in having him be this surprising, right. I think they're, they're communicating that. And then, uh, and then Charlie comes back mm-hmm. and confronts Barton, although it's not even really
2: that much of a confrontation. What, what, would, what does John Goodman want to uh, do for Barton? He wants to show him the, oh, life, the life of the, of the mind. mind. Yeah.
0: It's, and, and what's more is just like, and before that, and if he says that
2: after he kills a couple detectives with a shotgun. but Two uh, very funny detectives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, the Coen, like the Cullen <laughs> Brothers dialogue when <laughs> Michael Lerner is just going or when Tony Shaloub is sort of ranting yeah. or when these two cops are talking yeah. is like them at their
0: sharpest. <laughs> you know, I usually say that anything you can remember would be helpful but I'll be frank with you, Fink. That is not helpful. <laughs> Notice how he wasn't writing it down. Yeah. Oh, That's the best. But, um, but yeah, so they get killed. Uh, so, but yeah, and so Charlie says, I'll show you the life of the mind, which of course previously it's implied that only Barton really knows what the right. life of the mind is. Only means. a writer could know. Yeah, of course. And so then they have a discussion in the middle of a, m- a hotel that's burning down, uh, also as a result of Charlie slash Carl. And and Barton says, like, well, wh- why did you do this? Why me? And he, and he yells at that point, more to get his attention than to get angry at him. He says, because yeah. you don't listen. Yeah. And he says, do you think you know pain? You think I made your life hell? Mm-hmm. I memorized this. Like, take a look around this dump. You're just a tourist with a typewriter. I live here. Yeah. And you come into my home. And you complain that I'm making too much noise, which incidentally was uh, was the uh, the inciting incident. Yes. And so and in that moment, it's just so it's so sad. But it says so much about how artists often look at the audience or people that aren't artists. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like, oh, no, absolutely. I want to draw as much as I can from you. Could you keep it down, though? Mm -hmm. I'm only really interested in what I have to say. Right. And uh, in in his conception of the common man, as opposed to the common man, as we've said, and so so in that sense, the idea. So I, it's weird because I never would have thought of it, and then when you said Barton Fink, immediately I saw it Mm -hmm. that like, the prestige is about well, among many things, it's about pure artistry, and uh, and the the tendency of an artist to sometimes feel as though. They have no use for the audience. They mm-hmm. will tell the audience what they should like, what they, what they are like, and stuff like that. But, of course, you need to draw from humanity. Mm-hmm. You need to draw from your audience in order to say anything, mm-hmm. um, whether it be a lecture or just your interpretation of what the world is. And in The Prestige, Angier seems to have an understanding of that. Mm-hmm. Of how important the audience is, and how he want, and as a result, how he wants to serve the audience, yeah. not lecture them. Um, and that's something that Barton sort of comes to understand is that you need to actually listen. You need to yeah. actually engage
2: with these people if you're going to have anything worthwhile to say. Yeah. See, I I I, cr- I sort of think of it as like. It's like an artist gone wrong sort of thing. <laughs> like you can you can become so obsessed with, you know, yourself or a rivalry or innovating the art or whatever that basically you destroy yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. That's one way you can really go wrong. And from numerous ideologies, uh as they do in the prestige, or you can not know why you're saying what you're saying, or you can not know what you're saying. Uh, as well as you think you do, mm-hmm. um, you know so so these are these are all sorts of ways that artists can go wrong, and for Barton Fink, it really seems one of the biggest sort of uh, sort of changes or or I guess uh, arcs in the film is the idea of going from lip service to understanding, right. And like in Hollywood, where so many we talked about Michael Lerner having not even read the play and things like that, so many people are giving Barton Fink lip service. And yet that's the same thing that he's doing to Charlie. Oh, yeah. Um, And only when he actually understands, as as you talked about, you know, who this person actually is, that's the only way you can say anything about that person is when you understand them instead of just having some sort of... Uh, lofty idea about them that you want to project onto them,
0: and it's interesting. Uh, before really thinking about these movies in context of each other, uh, I used to have a much more negative view of the character of Lipnick, and of course, he is primarily a negative character. He doesn't reveal himself to be negative, wholly negative yeah. until the end of the film, uh, and of course, and he is very funny uh, to be sure. But by the end, like there's there's some nice moments when he. As if as if dealing with Charlie wasn't bad enough, he you know, think uh, Barton does have the screenplay now, and Lipnick has read it, or more specifically, I think somebody else read it. Yeah, and um, <laughs> man, that's a, uh, so much. I Michael Lerner's only in I believe three scenes. Yeah, and of course he's amazing in all of them, and uh, and he he gets mad at Barton for making this, you know self writing this self indulgent thing and and then barton says like i wanted to write something beautiful i want to show you something beautiful something about all of us and that's what sets Lipnick off almost as if like and of course the way he flies off the handle implies that he's really irrational and all that sort of thing yeah but he just says like the the it's almost like he's mad at Bar- Barton's audacity. It's like, oh, really? You're going to show me something about all of us as if I don't know anything about mm. about anything like
2: but you're see, gonna, at you... that point. Do, I, I'm more on Barton's side because he mm. has actually gained some insight. And so I actually doesn't he call his agent and say, like, this is the best thing I've ever written, like after uh, he finishes it after he finishes it. So I
0: think he's gained some insight, but it's before he actually talks to Charlie. Once Charlie has come back. I think that is when he gains... So I think the screenplay...
2: No, no, because no, he's got the box there. He's got the, the woman's head in the box that Charlie... Oh, Charlie leaves it with him before yes. he comes back. There yes. you go. Like,
0: once it has been firmly established that Charlie is Carl Munt and he comes back and he lectures him about not listening, the screenplay has already been written at that point. So I don't mm-hmm. think it's... I think Barton has has gotten mostly where he's going to be yeah but only in that last moment with charlie i think he fully starts to understand but uh but one thing that i like that Lipnick says and i'll have to censor it is you think the whole world revolves around what goes on in that little head of yours yeah and of course Lipnick is being very antagonistic and and of course you're not on board with them any more than i'm on board with any studio executive um but it is a good point which is like, yeah you know, there are other things in the world. There are other people in the world. There are other views of the world. It's not purely what you want what you think it is. And, and I feel like that. But okay. Then it, let me
2: ask you like, okay, what's a writer supposed to do then? What is he supposed to not try to show you something beautiful? Is he supposed to not try to show you something about all of us? I, like I, I don't really see Michael Lerner's point in that scene. I, I see it more as like we wanted something simple, and you've tried to give us something complicated or interesting.
0: And I think, and I think by and large, that's that's what I think of it in that sense. Because of course, he even says like it's like oh we don't want some some fr- like fruity thing about uh, some fruity film about suffering. He's like I'll oh, write a little bit for the critics, right. and I like the little bone he throws to that. But um, but I do think, and of course, yeah, a writer needs to. Or an artist in general needs to show you their interpretation of the world. But I think it does speak, again, to Barton's specific situation of... And I think Lipnick's words have a different significance for us than they do for Lipnick himself. Uh I think he's speaking wisdom without knowing it. Right. um, Which is this idea of, like, there are bigger things than just you, and Barton so far has only subscribed to himself. Right. And so I feel like... In the larger context of the film, I think I'm on board with what Lipnick is saying. I don't think I'm on board with why
2: Lipnick himself is saying uh-huh. it, but
0: as far as thematically, I think I'm yeah. kind of on board with it.
2: And I do really like what, sort of, sort of what, uh, now that Barton actually has understood something, what, uh, what's next for him? Is he's under contract so that anything he writes, now that he does have something to draw from, anything he writes is the property of Lipnick. Mm-hmm. And Lipnick, because he is so frustrated with Barton, yeah. will never produce any of it.
0: And then he gives a qualifier and he says, not until you grow up a little. Yeah. And, that, and that's weird because... Again, like I'm trying to look at it in the context of the film As opposed to how Lipnick probably means it Which is, until you learn to just give me everything I want I'm sure it's how he approaches it But I think of myself as a writer when I was younger And of course, I wrote about stuff that I only knew about from movies Right? You know, the the, uh, screenplay that I wrote The Model Citizen in high school Which is all about political uh, corruption and stuff like that You know, stuff that you know about when you're 17 (laughs) And just, you know, like... And it, everything, all the characters speaking cliches. I stand by one or two of those scenes, but overall it's ridiculous.
2: One or two scenes in a screenplay, that's good. Yeah, that's not bad. No no problem. You only really need one or two, right? That's pretty much it. So uh, I think that might be a better batting average than my first screenplay. Eh, that had some moments. No, 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 you didn't. Not not that one. Oh, okay. The, the one I wrote in eighth grade by hand, uh, there was a horror movie uh, about a scarecrow killer. Oh, what was it called? I don't remember. Was it called The Scarecrow Killer? I hope so.
0: But that's about a guy who kills scarecrows. Right, yeah. <laughs> He's very low ambition <laughs> when it comes to murder. <laughs> it's just like, uh I don't want to have to worry about, like, wrestling somebody down or anything. No, um, It's not worth it. No, absolutely not. For, it's, you know, a lot of... Uh, ah, never mind. So, uh, but it got me thinking, like, well, the reason that my screenplays weren't good was because, quite frankly... Not to imply that you can't write something good when you're younger, but in my specific case, it's mm-hmm. because I hadn't experienced really yeah. anything in life. Yeah. I had not grown up. And much in the same way, like, Barton only knows his own experiences. Right. And his own interpretations. And what's more, that's all he seems to be interested in. Right. And so he needs to grow up a little mm-hmm. if, he's go- if Lipnick's going to do any of his stuff. Now, of course, again, I don't mean to align myself completely and specifically with Lipnick. Lipnick Smith. That's me. That's what they call me. Yep. But uh but yeah, I feel like that's and to bring it back to the prestige, I feel like that is that is something that artists can get out of this, and this'll lead us to uh, you know, kind of the larger things that we're talking about, is is recognizing that there's a world outside yourself. But of course, as an artist, the only thing that you really have to go on is your interpretation of that world.
2: Yeah. But
0: you still need to need to engage with it, you can watch yeah. you can watch the news and then sit at home and like write everything out, but like you need to talk to people, you need mm-hmm. to actually listen to people, and it can do amazing things for you yeah you know and uh, and one thing as you and I were talking about it, about this is you know both Angier and Borden are right because the point of art is to I think That's a lofty beginning to a sentence. Yeah, yeah, the point of art. Okay. Uh, perhaps one of the goals of art uh, is to serve the audience. Now, of course, serving the audience is not necessarily giving them everything they want, but mm-hmm. it is to serve the audience in some capacity with the qualifier that sometimes, in fact, I would venture to say, always, the best way to serve the audience is to give them it is to produce the best absolute best you can do yeah because pandering almost always starts with making a a compromise and giving what giving them giving the audience what you think they want yeah you know
2: and it's a fine line to walk what do you think about what i've just said so many things tyler okay uh one, one thing i was thinking of is uh you know my my usual scorn for um if we're gonna stick with film with with most christian films that has Really, no seems to have no understanding. You, you're looking at "Remember the Titans" or um, uh, what's the what's the other one? What's "Remember that? the Titans"? Do you mean no. "Facing the Giants"? "Facing the Giants" is are those different films? Titans the Giants. Titans the Facing Giants. <laughs> um, yeah. So Facing the Giants and uh, Fireproof. Fireproof. There yeah. it is. I couldn't episode think of, thirteen. Couldn't think of that idiotic title. Um, <laughs> you know, or uh, both of which I've seen, so mm-hmm. I'm not just. You know, talking out of school. Um, Those those have no conception of really how people live, or how people think, or how people speak, or how people behave. Right. You know, has no understanding and is just like just trying to basically paint by numbers so that it can make a point. Right. Such a prepackaged point that Mm -hmm. is really itself poorly conceived anyway right it's not a very deep point it's not not nuanced no it's it's not something that requires an hour and 40 minutes to arrive at Mm -hmm. this is a you know this is a two-page paper they've written basically (laughs) um so something like that because the 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 point of this series if i understand it correctly Mm -hmm. is to sort of not equip but to give Christian artists, something to think about, to think about well, what kind of an artist do I want to be and how do I go about being that sort of artist? What mm-hmm. are some things I need to look for in myself, maybe be aware of, maybe be, you know, uh, be be a little wary of. Um, and I think that, especially for Christian artists, it can be very easy to only write characters who fit in with our ideology mm-hmm. and to and to really not give to really not respect any other points of view and so you basically have you know toy soldiers for uh you know or straw dogs for uh the the characters who represent something that you don't want your film or you don't want your art to promote and it's so easy to do that uh and dangerous to do that because it's not going to be as good Mm -hmm. um that was my initial thought did you Real
0: quick, did you mean to say straw men and you said straw dogs? No, I said
2: straw dogs. Okay, There's a, they're remaking it. Yeah, I know it's topical. Okay, I got it. Um, straw soldiers, toy dogs. <laughs> you can you have to take two of the three words and you just sort of mash them up. It's like I've created a new thing. Some right? d- some dog straws.
1: <laughs>
2: um, but uh, it's soldier a straw toys. Well, that just for
1: flipped your the dog.
0: um. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing to, uh, to keep in mind. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you brought up Christian film. And now, of course, there's plenty of non-Christian film that has a message and is terrible. Yeah. For example, you got your Lions for Lambs.
2: Sure. You got your uh, Life of David Gale. Oh. Yeah. I saw that picture in theaters. Boy, oh, boy. I drove 45 minutes to see that movie. Wow. It wasn't playing at the uh, the Warrensburg Six, Tyler. Man, oh, man! This is what happens.
0: Uh, hey, we all have have these moments when it's like, hey, I like that actor. I'm gonna go see that because you were big into Kevin Spacey yeah. at the time, right? And he does a fine job, but man, oh, man! In service of nothing. I better stop going. In service along of this... a
2: giant question mark.
0: <laughs> oh no, that's an exclamation point. <laughs> um, if nothing else, that's what that film is. It is a declarative statement. What? Well, I thought it was a
2: movie. Nope, Nope. Um, incorrect. <laughs> so, uh, see, that's, a, that's what I'm saying a question mark for the audience. Wait, I thought this was supposed to be a movie. <laughs> exactly, uh,
0: and so, so I don't want to make it seem as though I'm bashing just Christian film. Except I think that, of course, we're speaking to I, I, predominantly a Christian audience, and so I want to, you know, I feel like it's a great example of what we're talking about. And I want to use the structure of Barton Fink and Charlie Meadows. Mm -hmm. If you watch a Christian film, you watch a Fireproof or a Time Changer
2: or whatever, and you see the way... I believe a hot dog is stolen in that film. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you know that stealing is wrong? Well, why is he eating a hot dog? Shouldn't he be eating something more nutritious? You're supposed to say, who says? Oh, who (laughs) says? Oh, my gosh, what a terrible film. Uh,
0: But here's the thing. When you see... What if that moment
2: had turned into a discussion of nutrition? (laughs) Wouldn't that have been an interesting (laughs) thing?
0: The kid's like, I was saving your life. He's like, touche, little girl. Um, I I guess that's uh, Righteous Theft, right? I I don't care. Is that the name of the documentary? Righteous Righteous Theft? (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) So, so I want to use the structure of Barton and Charlie. Because, strange as it sounds, imagine Charlie Meadows is uh, is non Christians, and Barton is a Christian filmmaker. Oh yeah, the maker of Fireproof, for example. And Bart and the the filmmaker is saying like, "What? Well, why aren't you coming to see my film?" And then. The non-Christian audience says, because you don't listen. Yeah. You haven't listened to anything that I have to say. Mm-hmm. You want to make a movie for me? You want to talk to me? Show that you've listened to anything I've said. Yeah. Show that you have any interest in depicting me in any kind of real way. Yeah. You know, like, that's the thing. is, like, And you
2: know, the, the, the same also goes, Charlie Meadows could also be the Bible because they don 't really seem to be listening to that too close they 've got like the uh, you know they 've got like the cliff 's notes on what the Bible is and what it says yeah've they 've gotten the overview they 're reading the message <laughs> uh, bible translation humor hey you know it 's a christian podcast that 's right
0: um, you know and, and that 's the thing is i 'm glad you brought up the Bible why wouldn 't I be <laughs> uh, because that does lead me to uh to this other uh, the other thing that i wanted to the other point that I wanted to make is
2: that. Jesus, he's in the Bible. He's in there. Oh, uh, he's in the second half. Yeah, he's he, more. You got yeah. to wait for the intermission. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, but they talk
2: about him before.
0: It takes a drastic shift. So um, when Jesus often when he, of course, he, he would give sermons and he would speak very directly mm-hmm. to uh, the crowds. But often when he had a point to make. He would do it with a parable because he understood the power of a story. Yeah, and the one that I always point at and 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 I or point to and I've done it several times uh, over the course of the more than one lesson uh, run. Probably my favorite parable that he that Jesus told is the story of the prodigal son, mm-hmm. because here's what it is. He's getting a point across, but he's also in my opinion, telling a really good story, yeah with characters an arc, and kind of and filling in details As it, is it
2: like a parabola, not like noah's Ark uh yes, thank
0: you, uh yeah, like a character arc, yes, I'm sorry, good call um and so like that's he... bible story confusion humor for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Samson? So, uh, like, when it comes to dramatic structure, he mm-hmm. recognizes, like, little things like the son saying, like, uh, just feed me what you feed pigs or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, let me live as a slave. Like, speci- like living with pigs is what I meant to say. Um, Like, specifics in the story. Yeah. That really flesh out character. Mm-hmm. Jesus was telling a good story yeah. And the better the story was The more effective the message was going to be Yeah, And, and you the noticed, more complete it is Like yeah. every character There are three main characters in that mm-hmm. story Each one of them represents something And when you read the story Afterwards Jesus doesn't uh, Certainly as he's telling the story He doesn't say And then the father who incidentally represents God Like he doesn't yeah. do that Nor does he say at the end of the story By the way let me explain what this meant Right he tells a great story. There's no commentary. Yeah. He tells a great story, and quite frankly, he's content to, if you don't want to delve further into it, he's content to let it just be a great story. Mm. But if you want to delve deeper into it, it's all
2: there. Well, he would prefer you delve deeper. He would prefer that, yes. Um, but you, you mentioned those those three characters in The Prodigal Son. Mm-hmm. There is a dynamic between each one of them. There's a There's a dynamic between the father and each of the sons mm-hmm. and between the sons themselves because the son who stays behind is resentful that uh, the prodigal son would even like take his inheritance and leave mm-hmm. and then that he would be welcomed back. And so you actually have an interaction mm-hmm. and a dynamic between each of those characters um, instead of just being something that is just sort of one-sided.
0: Right, absolutely, because... And that's and that's where because it's not merely like he engages with his listeners, not merely in telling them something that he knows they need to hear. Mm -hmm. It's not merely that it's that he also understands that everyone's going to everyone who's hearing it is going to be able to sympathize with someone in that story. Yeah. And so rather than tell it solely from the point of view of one of the brothers or the father. And like the point of view of the father And both the brothers are terrible Like you can relate to The brother who Makes terrible decisions and so badly wants Redemption or forgiveness But doesn't expect it Uh, You can relate to the brother who's like Oh well I did everything The right way and I'm not getting any big Celebration yeah who's self-righteous Like he understands human nature Because Mm -hmm. he's listened he's engaged With these people yeah you know and So rather than just each character is three-dimensional, believable, and relatable. And the relatability is what gets people listening. And it gets mm-hmm. them thinking like, huh, wow, this really has meaning for me. Yeah. And so like, I don't know. I, that's one of the reasons that I, that I like Jesus as a storyteller and as an artist is because, again, the stories, he, he had a, a point to them certainly, but they work on their own. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's that it's a mixture of art, to me it is a mixture of artistry and engaging with the audience, considering the audience. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what we can get from these movies, from The Prestige, is, and, and Barton Fink, is just bringing these two things together when it's so easy to be like, no, 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 it's just about the message, it's just about giving the audience what they want, mm-hmm. or telling them what they should have or or whatever. Um oh no, that's the other side. You know, giving them what they want and pandering to them as I would say many Christian films do. Mm. Or it's like no no no, it's only about the artistry and if the audience uh, is, you know, engaged, well, good for them. I don't care. Right. You know, when you when you take those two aspects and bring them together, some of the best art ever will be made, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Um now, one of the questions I, I posed to you when we, when we took a break briefly was um, something that I do think relates much more to the prestige than to uh, Barton Fink, right. although perhaps a little. Um, and that is this, the, the notion of obsession. For, for many artists, the idea of dedicating yourself to that, particularly if it is a calling, if you, if you feel called to, to do that with your life, to make that your life's work, as it were. There's a dedication to that. And to what extent should that dedication be at the expense of everything else? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reminded of a and, and there uh, I sent I sent Tyler a link. Maybe it'll be in the notes for the show. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you do that.
0: I'll, I'll I'll throw it in.
2: All right. Uh, it's it's a Quentin Tarantino interview with Charlie Rose uh, around the time that Inglorious Bastards came out. And he was saying, he w- he was asked about his personal life, and Quentin Tarantino was talking about how he's had a few chances to be married, but they didn't happen, and he really sort of let them sort of fall away, because that was the only way to dedicate himself to making these movies. Mm-hmm. And so to what extent do you view, should, should you sort of view the calling to... uh to to artistry as sort of like an apostle who is sort of very on their own mm-hmm. and, you know, may, may, maybe a Paul sort or a Paul type? Uh, or to what extent should that – when does that take a back burner? When do you – when is when does that obsession overtake your life?
0: And it's a good question because, of course, as you and I were talking about in the break uh, – Many of the best artists are terrible people. Horrible people. Awful people. Yeah. And it's, one could say it's because they have, forego- they have foregone any sort of relatability to their fellow man, or to God certainly, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in favor of, I've got this thing to do and that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Um, and that level of commitment can make for great art. No question about it
2: and so it's it is a
0: good question
2: and so how do you get how do you stay that committed without um, with without hurting your your other commitments without hurting your commitment to God without letting the art be an idol in your life mm-hmm. because i can i I can tell you and i I think you know this we mm-hmm. we we had a we had a an artist' prayer night one night mm-hmm. uh, a couple months ago and and Uh, One of our friends, friend of the show, Ben C.? Yes. Has Ben been? Yeah, he has. Um, Talked about really being at a place where he can completely, like, let his artistry go. And just really let God put him where he wants him to be. And I thought... Let go and let God, they call that. I'm sure they do. Yeah. I don't say that. I don't think he said that. Let's say he said that. Fair enough. Supposing he said that. Take that, Ben. Um, But so he said that, and I felt extremely convicted by that because I am someone I I feel very driven I do feel called to write and direct but I hold on to that calling with a vice grip um and and he he's very he has accepted that if God wants to take it away then God will put something else in its place uh and I I often worry that God will take it away which shows me that it's an idol in my life. And something we were talking about last night, uh, you know, how do you serve the audience? And you sort of touched on it uh, tonight. How do you serve the audience? Well, the artist does need to sort of just do it for himself, mm-hmm. but because in doing so, he will get to a place where he can express something to an audience or he mm-hmm. can share something. Yeah. Um. But it is very easy, at least for me, to just sort of get in an endless loop of, it's all about me, yeah. and it's what I want to do, and I'm not doing this for anybody else. And if nobody else gets it, and if nobody else cares, well then, too bad. They they're not smart enough. Then, and you know, it's it it, it almost makes it an antagonistic relationship. Yeah. Um, and so art can very easily become an idol in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's
0: – and I mentioned this in my, uh, <coughs> in my uh, testimony episode that, like, when I felt God calling me towards film criticism, I was so – I was so reluctant to do it because yeah. it's like I came out here to be a screenwriter and that's – or to, to be a – I think writer is, is what I came out here to be specifically. Director, yeah. sure, but probably writer. Yeah. Um, and it's just like that's how I define myself and if I let go of that – I will look like a quitter. Like I was right. much more concerned with, you know, as we've mentioned, you know, with the the characters in The Prestige, they want they want it for themselves. Like the artistry that Borden wants, that's all well and good, but he wants to be the one to do it. Yeah. The 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 acclaim that uh uh Angier. Angier wants, it's like he wants to serve the audience, but more specifically, he wants it to be him. That serves right. the audience. He wants people to know that. And much in the same way, it's like, oh yes, Lord, I absolutely want to be, uh, I'll, I'll be a screenwriter. Awesome. All right. Everyone's going to know how awesome I am when I'm a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, I want you to be a critic now. Oh no. Yeah. And rather than, rather than take joy in the fact that God called me to be this other thing, I was upset because it was about me. Yeah. And I feel like there is a tendency, uh, and I, we were talking about this a moment ago, uh, off air um, There's a tendency In the art community Christian or otherwise And we see this in Barton Fink To really put yourself above other people And say what I'm doing is very important Right I create for a living Yeah Bart- Barton says that in, in the film You know this is my You know whatever He points to his brain and like This is my uh, Studio I don't remember what exactly what he says But uh but yeah like just this idea of buying into yourself yeah because god has called you to this thing that because you see the you might see the world a certain way or whatever mm-hmm. but like and i don't know how one is able to to sort of keep that in check i mean one of them i know this is terrible and i feel like there's excuse me there's probably a better way to to look at it than this but like one, one way to keep yourself in check is like, something could happen tomorrow that makes me no longer able to do this. Yeah. You know, because now I define myself rather egotistically as a critic um, mm-hmm. and, and all the potential ego that that could come with. Uh, but as I said in the testimony episode, like, I could get in a car accident and lose my sight tomorrow. Once that happens, I'm not a film critic anymore. Right. So then what am I? And my first instinct was to be like, well, I, what am I then? What can I do for a living? It's like, no, no, no. You're defining yourself in this thing. You're an idol. You know, this profession is an idol for you. Mm -hmm. And really the only thing that can define you that won't go away is God and your relationship with God. Even your family members can go away. And so I think, I think you can still get artistic quality. By looking by acknowledging that God called you to this, but it he very well could have called somebody else to this and did yeah and that you're not you're probably not the best at this, and that and that he is trusting you i don 't know maybe this could engender a certain degree of humility he is trusting you to look insi- to look inside yourself to look at humanity and to form that into a creative thought that you're putting out there and that you're communicating to other people and sharing with other people and not to make it too much about you, but to use your own instincts and your own observations as sort of a starting point, a jumping off point. Well,
2: I think what you said, right. It's like, I think what you said is right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very difficult to get to that same place of like sort of artistic confidence from a place of humility it's that Mm -hmm. that's harder it's so much easier to get from to a place of artistic confidence and dedication by thinking that it's all about you Mm -hmm. because that just i mean you're just at that point feeding everything that you want and that you desire and and that yeah yeah you are called to but it, it it's so much easier to do it from a place of selfishness And that's what motivates you. Then humility and basically doing it out of thankfulness, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but that but that humility that that is actually one thing we've talked about um, Christian filmmakers sometimes not having actually is that they just assume that because they're called by God that. Whatever craft they happen to know or however much they understand film, that's or however it's written, doesn't really matter because it's a Christian film, so God will just use it and we don't have to do anything about it. And they just yeah. assume that it's going to be good as opposed to there is a way to toil over something mm-hmm. and to really let yourself be burdened by it yeah, because you feel a responsibility to your calling and not because you want to be seen as brilliant and because you want to get all this adoration and acclaim, which you won't get if the thing turns out not to be good. Absolutely. And and I think a good
0: way of kind of kinda keeping yourself in check is to recognize that though art is kind of an intangible thing, it's a calling just like everything else is a calling. Yeah. And if you don't put the effort into it, you know, like a, like a Borden... Yeah. If you don't put the effort into really crafting the best possible thing, then you're not going to you're certainly not going to get the adoration that you may want, yeah. but you're also not going to connect with the crowd at all. Right. Those Christian films that we were talking about like they may wa- so desperately want to communicate a message, they may want to touch their audience, but they're they're so concerned with the audience that they, are, they haven't concerned themselves at all with craft. Right. And that's the other side of it is you need to know, you need to accept every aspect of that responsibility yeah. just as you have to do with any other job. Yeah. Surgeon, you know, plumber's the one I always go to. Yeah. Or teacher or whatever. Like, you could get egotistical about any of those. But as I said, there's something about being an artist that it's just like, well, hang on. God has called me to really. Right. You know interpret things and let you know what I I think. But actually we may need to actually end the episode there because it goes into what the next episode is going to be about, which is about the Black Swan Mm -hmm. which will be just, I'm sorry, Black Swan uh, and how much of yourself to invest in your art and that sort of thing.
2: Uh, I want to close with one more story that is very uh, steeped in the Bible. Okay. So a good way to sort of gauge whether or not uh, it is an idol in your life, and I will just say that it it's often an idol in mine, and mm-hmm. it is is—it is a very, you know, it's very much a balancing act of making sure it's not, and then, you know, it creeps back up, and it's like, it, it's something you constantly have to keep in check, and you constantly have to be thinking about. Um, I just finished reading Deuteronomy. Okay. And Deuteronomy is um you know the final book and sort of the first that that um that moses wrote mm-hmm. and uh and in it basically the israelites for the entire book they are about to cross the jordan river into the promised land mm-hmm. and they're right there and moses has led them out of egypt and he's led them this entire way and now that they're there about to go in god has told him you don't get to go in. What the Lord called him to do, which is get the people into the promised land, that's still going to happen. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't get to be there when it happens. Yeah. And in the first part of Deuteronomy, he is like, he he keeps questioning God to the point that the Lord says, don't ask me about this again. It's not going to happen. And he can like, I mean, he's on the top of a mountain. He can see every bit of the promised land that he doesn't get. Mm-hmm. And he has to basically give over control to Joshua. Um, and he, he does. And he prepares Joshua to take over for him. And I always think about like, what if my, all the desires I've been given for artistry and for writing and directing, what if that's actually just so that I can pave the way for, my son or mm-hmm. daughter to be in this industry. What if I have to like struggle in the industry so that they have an immediate in? Yeah. How would I feel about that? And the answer is, I would hate it. Yeah. I would be infuriated. I would feel like my life didn't have the meaning that I wanted it to have, which shows that it's about me. Yeah,
0: I've uh, I've had that same thought. Like uh, for every for all the. Uh... Talk that I've given uh, Specifically in the uh, testimony Episode about how exciting it is For me as a critic To point to a specific film Or point to artists and encourage uh, Artists to like Be their best and all that Uh, I know several actors I know several Filmmakers and writers uh, (coughs) And I want to Encourage them and when when Success starts to happen for them I'm thrilled I'm very excited For them But then in the back of my mind, it's just like 10 years from now, they could be huge and I could still be doing this. Yeah. Like, I'm excited only if we like I was I still want to be a successful critic. It's not enough for me to merely encourage them and they become successful. Right. I also want to be successful. Right. You know, and so it's it's easy for me to say now when we're all struggling. Mm hmm. But it's much more likely that these people that I'm encouraging are going to succeed than me. Film criticism is a dying uh, yeah. industry. And so, like, and I realize, like, oh, I am not comfortable with that at all. Right. I'm only comfortable with this calling, Lord, uh, if I'm successful in it. it. Yeah, if it leads to the sort of success that I envision for myself. Right. I, I'm i fine with championing these other people, provided they don't leave me behind. Right. I better work my way into an at the very least an Oscar acceptance speech.
2: Yeah, which is actually, you know, not an Oscar acceptance speech, but leaving him behind like that's exactly what the Israelites do. Like mm-hmm. Moses dies on that mountain overlooking the promised land. Yeah, without ever getting to go in it as the, you know, and all the people cross. And that actually oddly enough that speaks to uh
0: there's there's one little
2: and I found that I found that heartbreaking. Oh yeah. And it just destroyed me. That he couldn't, that he couldn't do that, which again, speaks to what's going on in me.
0: And uh, at our, at the church that we attend uh, this past uh, this past week, uh, our our pastor was talking about any number of things. One thing that always struck me was, you know, sometimes God doesn't give you a reason, mm-hmm. um, because what for suffering or whatever the case may be, waiting. Um, sometimes he doesn't give you a reason because that reason will be your consolation when, right. in fact, your consolation should be God himself. Yeah. And so you may not, like in Angier, you may not get the adoration. Yeah. Or, like, Borden, you might not get the legacy. People might forget about you the minute you're dead. Yeah. Like
2: Or before I'm dead.
0: Or before... Oh, that's... Into- <laughs> How about this? They might not even know who you are, much less forget you. Exactly. They and never so- knew me to forget me. <laughs> exactly. And so... And so you might demand a reason. It's like, well, at least tell me why this is happening. And you may not get a why. You may not get the payoff. Yeah. Because you'll use that payoff to just, it's like, well, I can get through this, provided I get that. Right. Um. And, uh, but of course, God has to be the payoff. Yeah. And if you keep that in mind, I think no matter what profession you choose. Yeah. Um, I think that can keep you humble and keep you working for God's sake, instead of your own. Yeah. And, uh, will keep you from becoming a terrible person who happens to be a great filmmaker. I think you can be a great filmmaker be- chiefly because you, you are not quite so wrapped up in it. Yeah. So, cause I think at that point you can actually suffocate art, uh, from squeezing so hard. Okay. So I think we're done. It's been a long episode. Uh, not as long as this because we'll have to cut some stuff out, but, um, Jason, thanks for being here and talking about this with me. It was a delight as usual. All right.
2: Uh, so now real quick, uh, Jason, where can people find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Eakin. All caps on that. E-A-K-E-N. Yeah. Uh, and I also have a uh, a blog at WordPress. It's uh, Eakin Nation, E-A-K-E-N-A-T-I-O-N. I think if you Google that, mm-hmm. then it just it, it comes up.
0: And, uh, okay, so you can find, uh, his various things there. Don't forget, uh, we mentioned it earlier, but I want to reiterate, uh, his film Reservations. Go to battleshippretention.com. Uh, go to the store, and, uh, you can order it for five dollars, and he'll send it right to you. At, uh, he wrote and directed it. I'm in it along with friend of the show, Josh Long. Uh, there's commentary by me, Jason, and, uh, BP co host David Bax. So, uh, please do that. It's a lot of fun. Um, As for me, you can find me at uh, MoreThanOneLesson.com. You can email me, uh, thoughts or questions, uh, Tyler at MoreThanOneLesson.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. That's Twitter.com slash MoreLessons. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.